irony is a linguistic trust fall. The, the thing that makes irony really interesting and exciting and useful is the possibility that it could go wrong. Because if, if you wanted to be completely clear about how, everything that you were meaning, we already have a really good tool for that, and it's called not being sarcastic. Welcome to Signs for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is internet linguist Gretchen McCulloch. She writes the Resident Linguist column at Wired, has a master's in linguistics from McGill University, runs the blog All Things Linguistic, and co-hosts the podcast Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I think you can sense a trend. She's here to talk about her recent book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. Gretchen, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you for having me. So how does one get into internet linguistics specifically? I first encountered linguistics through a pop linguistics book, which is why it's very exciting for me to have written one. Uh, I came across uh, a book just kind of randomly on a shelf uh, when I was around 12 or 13 uh, and picked it up and uh, kind of took it home with me. <laughs> Uh, and could, just couldn't, couldn't stop reading it and thought this was really cool and sort of kept feeding that interest uh, during high school. And then I knew that that's what I wanted to study when I got to university and, and things like that. And then so it's been a real interesting sort of uh, trajectory to return to that and do pop linguistics, uh, which is the way that I got interested in linguistics. And now people tell them that I'm the one that got them into it. So that's kind of exciting. I spend a lot of time on the internet, like many of us. Uh, and I... I think like a lot of linguists, I have a hard time turning that linguist part of my brain off, you know? So if you go to the pub with me or something, you know, we may be having an ordinary conversation, but at some level, I'm also sitting there analyzing your vowels. Uh, you know, I just, <laughs> I just can't stop thinking about language and there's, it's so hard to go through a day, even an hour without encountering language in some capacity. And so, uh, you know, when I, was spending a lot of time on the internet. I started thinking, you know, I wonder what's going on, trying to find studies that people had done about various aspects of language on the internet, um, and trying to write about things that I was noticing and coming across more. And eventually it got to the point where I was like, I think there's a whole book here. I think there's more uh, here than I can just do in one article. So I want to start by talking about what a lot of internet writing is. And it's something that you open your book with, which is the idea of informal writing versus formal writing. So can you talk a little bit about that dichotomy and what kind of makes the way we communicate on the internet kind of new and exciting? Yeah, I think what's really interesting is so if you if you sort of take this historical perspective and look at some of the history of people analyzing uh, communication on the internet, uh, which is very fun and interesting to read these like 90s studies of like internet communication because it's a real blast from the past. Um, and a lot of them are very preoccupied with this question of what is the, the internet communication that people are doing? And a lot of them come to this conclusion that it's like speech, because it seems to have a lot of the properties of speech. Uh, you know, it's informal, and it's back and forth, and it's, uh, you know, has a higher tolerance for for error and for, for disfluencies and for immediate self-correction rather than being written in big formal paragraphs and so on. And yet, there was this thing that I found unsatisfying about this analysis, which is this very clear thing that is different from, say, your text messages and speech, which is that it's not sounds. <laughs> 
I don't know how to say this any more uh, <laughs> bluntly. Like it's not spoken. It's the, they're not sounds. They are symbols on a on a screen, on a page, on a flat surface. They're not like auditory acoustic things like I'm doing right now. <laughs> and so it seemed to me that what the analyses of of writing uh, internet writing being like speech were missing was that there are all these things that we popularly associate with speech, like having a conversation with your friends and interruptibility and, you know, informality and these kinds of things that aren't actually properties of the speech stream itself as like a bunch of air exits your mouth, and that are properties instead of the social context in which speech often happens. But speech doesn't have to happen in this sort of social context where you have a back and forth in conversation. Uh, and speech can actually happen in a formal context as well. Uh, you can, you know, if you're delivering a public speech, I don't go home and give PowerPoints to my dog. <laughs> you know, for one thing, I don't have a dog. Um, the second thing, dogs don't pay very much attention to PowerPoint. Um, but, you know, there's, but formal speech has different properties. It's rehearsed and it's not back and forth. Like, generally speaking, if you're giving a speech and somebody interrupts you, they're a heckler and they're being rude. Whereas if you're at a pub with somebody and you're having a, you know, you're delivering a speech and not letting them get a word in edgewise, now you're the one being rude. Uh, and so writing a long, you know, essay or book or any of these sort of article longer length things is kind of like giving a speech. It's this formal context. Uh, and there are all these characteristics of formal speech, uh, one of which is, you know, if we go back into the historic tradition, that it was often created in verse and in rhyme and in meter and in various sorts of artificial things going on, uh, which makes it easier to memorize. Um, you know, one of the reasons why Shakespeare's plays are written in iambic pentameter is because it's easier to memorize something with some meter to it, because the meter will tell you if you've forgotten something. If you know each line has to have these ten syllables <laughs> with these certain beats, then if you get somewhere and you only have three, you're like, oh, I de I've definitely forgotten something here, haven't I? It's why songs like, are so easy to memorize. Right. Similarly with songs, it has this sort of rhythm. But like, and, you know, if you go back to like the, the Iliad and the Odyssey and stuff, like they were, they were also written in, in meter. But like the ancient Greeks weren't wandering around talking to each other conversationally in daxilic hexameter. <laughs> <laughs> they were, uh, you know, having ordinary conversations that weren't in verse any more than Shakespeare was talking in verse to like his friends ordinarily at the pub. <laughs> so this, there's there's always been a distinction in speech, at least as far back as we have records, between the formal and the informal. Um, and in fact, this distinction is so old that we've kind of forgotten about it. We don't think about it very often. Um, and in writing, writing has often been the domain of formal things, you know, the equivalence of these speeches, things that are rehearsed, things that are edited, um, partly because, you know, it's fairly expensive to produce written materials. Um, so maybe you want to put them through an editing process. And it's also expensive to disseminate them. So you want to, you know, disseminate them like a speech and make them really good. Um, but not all writing has to be informal. It has to be, but not all writing has to be formal. And in fact, the more you think about it, there are informal precursors in the written domain to internet writing as well. And I'm talking about things like letters, postcards, little like notes that you leave in like a post-it note or note on the kitchen table to somebody. Um, 
diary entries, uh, all sorts of casual things that weren't necessarily intended for public consumption. Maybe they were written for like one person, uh, or they were sent to, you know, a small number of people, or maybe they are posted, you know, like handwritten posters. People make uh, like lost cat or something, yard sale. Uh, and they these tend to have idiosyncratic spellings, and they are not always proofread, and they're not always, uh, you know, extended paragraphs. Sometimes they're just like a few fragmentary lines and sentences uh, and things like that. And they are actually a really interesting precursor for a lot of the writing that we see on the internet that seems sort of weird and fragmentary and, you know, informal, but actually it's got this sort of historical precedent. So I found that really exciting. It is really interesting because I hadn't thought it about it that much before reading the book. And there's actually a, a quote from your book that I, I want to read just briefly, which is, when we think about writing, we think about books and newspapers, magazines and academic articles, and the school essays in which we tried and mostly failed to emulate them. We learn to read a formal kind of language which pretends that the past century or two of English hasn't really happened, which downplays the alchemy of two people tossing thoughts back and forth in perfect balance. We learn to write with a paralyzing fear of red ink and were taught to be wary about form before we even got to consider what we wanted to say, as if good writing were a thing of mechanistic rule. It was something I had never thought of, but you're right. We learn to speak colloquially. We learn to speak by uh, having people speak around us, by observing casual conversations, uh, formal conversations, conversations of all types. But writing or and reading, we learn to do in this very kind of artificial way, or at least we have up until now, we learn it in a kind of formal from books through exercises at school, we don't pick it up from the world around us, we are taught a certain type of reading and a certain type of writing. And it, it you know, it makes me so sad, because writing, writing can be fun, but in the same way that public speaking can be fun. But I think a lot of people have similar sorts of anxieties about writing formally as they do public speaking, and for very good reason, because there are these, you know, these big high pressure environments uh, where you, you know, people who are really artistically gifted at them do spend a lot of time developing that skill. You know, if you want to become an actor, you you spend a lot of time developing that skill. Uh, or a, you know, public speaker or something like that, you spend a lot of time working on that. But the things that make uh, really compelling performance or a really compelling novel are often playfulness with language. And yet a lot of advice on how to do language is like, here's an apostrophe, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and uh, that's not, that's not what makes a book really good book compelling. Like the apostrophes, that's, that's really boring and low level <laughs> things. You know, what makes a book exciting is, is playfulness and interestingness and, and beauty. Uh, which isn't isn't so much a thing of technical accuracy as it is, you know, music. I think what's interesting as well is this idea that we've always had a kind of informal writing, but with the creation of the internet, I think there's something, there's definitely, I mean, I think there's obviously something new and interesting about this from a scholarly perspective, and even from a, a standpoint from a cultural perspective, a lot of that previous informal writing was private and hidden and between a very small number of people or very throwaway. Whereas on the internet, as I'm sure we've all learned by now, the internet is forever, or at least it can have a long memory. And it is also a kind of inherently public space. Yeah, I mean, you can write a tweet and it can go viral and lots of people can see it. And you were like, oh, well, I wasn't expecting my typo to go viral, but I guess that's happened now. And it's it's very normal. And I think 
one of the things that excites me in terms of how attitudes towards language have changed is I feel like I remember back in like <laughs> early blogs uh, or even, you know, early forums, there was a lot more sort of uh, linguistic nitpicking in like a comment section. Like someone would write this very interesting blog post and the comments would be like, you have a typo here. It's like, okay, guys, can we can we maybe engage with the content of this post? Uh, you know, like to me, it's you know, looking at sort of superficial arguments of, you know, is there is there a typo here? Like, is there some sort of, like, apostrophe thing that isn't where you were taught to put apostrophes? It's like doing an ad hominem attack. Like, nobody thinks that, oh, well, you're ugly is a good response to an argument. Like, that we recognize that's a logical fallacy. And we should be able to look at things that people are saying and evaluate them for the content of their ideas and, you know, maybe for a certain aesthetic beauty um, without getting distracted by these sort of superficialities of like, did you do this thing that my English teacher said was good or bad? Like that's – and the inverse is also true. If somebody says something abhorrent and they say it in really beautiful language, we shouldn't be okay with abhorrent ideas just because they're like propagandistically expressed in in beautiful language either. I feel like there's some kind of inherent bias or like um, logical fallacy whenever the Oxford comma gets brought up. I feel like there's something in there, like a modern logical fallacy that, that we're it's seeing like, at play there. I Yeah, like, do it, don't do it. I don't care. Like, it's whatever. There are so many more interesting things you could be talking about, uh, including, you know, what looking at people are actually doing with language, which is really neat. Uh, one of my favorite examples of sort of the shift in how we're learning to use language is uh, this thing that came up uh, via Twitter because somebody tagged me in this tweet, <laughs> uh, which is where I get a lot of my good ideas, <laughs> um, about uh, two young people. One of them was, I think, around like three and the other one was maybe eight who were texting back and forth with each other. And obviously the three-year-old wasn't literate yet. Um, and so they were texting back and forth to each other in emojis, in strings of emojis, <laughs> which is so delightful. Um, and so I wondered, and the person who posted it wondered, um, who was, uh, Lulu Miller, um, Lulu wondered, like, who else is doing this? And I wondered, like, is this, is this common? Are kids doing this now? Like, I don't, I don't have kids. Like, maybe this is what the kids are doing these days. Uh, and so I made a survey and I asked, uh, people who had, people who had kids, uh, who were willing to sort of anonymize some of their kids' text exchanges with themselves, with another adult, you know, like, try to get whatever consent you can and made a very small child emoji texting corpus. Oh, wow. Um, which is, first of all, incredibly adorable. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, I wrote an article about it for, for Wired, uh, in, in more detail. I mentioned it, I mentioned it in Because Internet, but I, I was doing it, like, right as the book was going to press. So I, like, snuck in, like, one sentence about it and I wrote up the whole thing for Wired. Um, and, uh, so I, I come up with this, this child emoji texting corpus. And, um, looking at, you know, can you just paste in, you know, you and the child and tell me how old the child is, uh, whether they know how to read yet. Um, and uh, any, any other comments you know, think about what they were trying to express when they were say saying this. And you notice some really interesting things. Uh, one of these is that the, the way kids use emoji between the ages of like two to three to four really shifts. So the two-year-olds are really just sort of keyboard mashers. Like, they're going all over the place. They're using some of the really weird emoji. Like, you go in and you're like, I didn't know these flags existed. <laughs> what country even is that? Like, they're really, well, like, the obscure symbols, uh, they're really going 
going for it. Uh, and they, they're kind of, they're very sort of haphazard. You look at them and as an adult, you're like, I have no idea what's going on. And then by the time they hit just a couple years later, you know, three or four, they have preferences. You know, like there was one kid who really liked any sort of like animal emoji that was a little bit like venomous, like the crabs and the scorpions and the, <laughs> um, like lobster, the, um, I think is there a lob, yeah, lobsters and the like crocodiles and stuff, like any of the little bit dangerous animal emoji. And that was like this kid's thing. <laughs> Um, and then you have other kids. It's pretty common. A lot of the kids like, you know, hearts and rainbows and like smiley faces and like, um, the kind of the ones you think of as like in a sticker pack, you know, for, for kids. Um, and whereas like the two year olds, they don't really notice that as much. The, the four year olds are like, oh no, I have preferences and these are my preferences. <laughs> I know what I'm trying to send here. Um, and then what's interesting is that couple years later, as the kids learn how to read, their emoji use drops off pretty drastically. And some of the parents even, I didn't ask specifically, I said like emoji or any other stuff, I didn't ask specifically like, is this a specific age or anything that this happens? But some of the the parents and like, you know, aunties and various people that were, were doing this for kids in their lives spontaneously commented, oh, these are some messages that I had saved, copy pasted from like a couple of years ago, back when this kid uh, before this kid learned how to read, because then they used to send a lot of emoji, but now they send me words instead because they've learned how to read. Interesting. Uh, and I think this is really interesting, right? So first of all, anybody who's worried like, oh no, emoji, they're taking over, which I feel like was more of a common narrative a few years ago. People seem to have calmed down, which I think is good. <laughs> but if you're worried about this still, it's like, okay, well, the kids at like age five and six are realizing that emoji are not adequate for all of the stuff they want to express. And it turns out words are actually useful. Um, so that's really nice. It's <laughs> unsurprising to me, but seems to be reassuring to a lot of people. Um, and the other thing is, is that when you look at the exchanges, it's also really interesting to see what the adults are texting to the kids. Because sometimes the adults will text emoji back, but sometimes the adults will actually type words to kids who can't read yet. Oh, interesting. So there's this one really cute example where, um, so you know, there's like two dinosaur emoji, right? There's mm -hmm. the, the, like the T-Rex and then the herbivore brontosaurus or whatever we're calling brontosauruses now. Um, <laughs> I'm not a three-year-old. I don't know dinosaur names. <laughs> um, so. Uh, the, the kid sends a bunch of T-Rexes, uh, and the adult says something like, oh, dinosaurs, and the kid sends a bunch of the other dinosaur, the kid says, oh, more, di more dinosaurs, and then the kid sends a bunch of trees and a bunch of like, you know, that like hunk of meat on a bone emoji? Yep. So then it's like, and the adult says, dinosaurs and dino food. <laughs> and it's kind of like how, you know, if they were walking in a park or something and the kid's like pointing at a tree, it's like, oh, yes, there's a tree. You're like, oh, there's a doggy. Do you see the doggy? Uh, in the way that adults often narrate objects of joint attention with kids when you're going about their life. Like, oh, yes, that is a squirrel, you know, that kind of thing. Except the adult's doing this in writing. And of course, this adult knows that this like three-year-old doesn't know how to read. But what is presumably happening, because none of these kids like had their own phones at three. Um, they were doing this on a parent or a caregiver's phone to somebody else who the parent or caregiver knows. Sometimes it was like the other parent who was like away on a work trip. Sometimes it was like a grandparent or like an auntie or uncle, this kind of, you know, family friend, godparent type person. Um, so somebody the parent knows that's on the parent's phone. And so the adult on the other end knows that the parent is going to be able to read this to the kid. Um, and say, you know, auntie so-and-so says dino food. <laughs> um, and what was, so what's interesting to me about this is like, 
you know, my parents read to me as a kid, but they read to me like picture books, like you do, like you think of as a typical thing to read to a kid. Or they would try to read to me like stop signs. Like, do you see this this sign? It says stop because they're trying to like point out, you know, literacy in the in the environment, which is like a thing that you're supposed to do when you're teaching kids why reading is important. But what they never would have read to me was things that were written specifically for me. You know, maybe if I guess like I got a birthday card or something, like happy birthday, you're Gretchen on your second birthday or whatever. I, but like, <laughs> uh, I don't, the idea that you can have writing not just as a way to communicate with absent abstract people or to learn stories in this sort of formal context, but as a way to communicate with specific people who you love, who the child loves. What a powerful motivator to want to learn how to read so that you can read what your other parent who isn't here right now or your grandparent or your auntie or your uncle or your godparent or whatever is trying to say to you. This adult who you love is trying to communicate with you and this is how you're going to do it. Yeah, it really you know? it motivates it motivates the reason to read in a new set of ways and a new set of much more immediate ways I would expect for somebody who's very young and just learning to speak and read because it's right. so, it's so immediate. Like people do it all the time. Now you see people reading, you see people texting, writing little bits and pieces to each other. That's such a part of how we communicate, such a necessary part of day to day communication that it, it's, it's, I, I, I would imagine that learning to read now as a six-year-old, as a five-year-old, is a very different experience than when I was six years old. Right, exactly. It's just, it's this, you know, here's this way of communicating with the people that you love, and it's it's grandma that has written this text to you, or it's grandpa that has written this text to you, that you're that you're reading so you can communicate with them. And of course, they can still talk on the phone and do, you know, uh, video chat and these kinds of things. And they do do that as well. Um, but this idea that like the, the reason that you'd want to read and write is to talk to specific people. And like, books are great. Like, no one's not reading books anymore. People are still buying books. Um, and like, you know, read, read books to your kids too, whatever. But like, talking to actual people who you know and love, who you know are behind the phone. Like, that's cool. I think that's great. It's, yeah, it's, it's such a, we learn our cultures and how we communicate in all of the different ways we communicate. And now because it's such an embedded part of communicate of our daily communication, it totally makes sense that we would share that with our very young children, just as a way of it being part of our day-to-day -day lives in the same way of having a conversation with someone while you're making dinner and the kids sitting at the table in a high chair. Like that's just, yeah. that's just life happening around you. And I think the other thing that's interesting is that, you know, adults in, you know, spoken language and in signed language, um, talk to kids and talk around kids before the kids are quite ready and able to participate back. Yes. Right. Um, you know, in some cultures, they don't really talk to their kids much directly until the kids start, you know, making, making noises towards or making, making gestures towards talking themselves. So it's not required. Like, you know, you can, you can use, baby talk. You don't have to. Um, kids seem to do fine either way. <laughs> the, uh, you know, but there are, there are all these different ways that you can interact with kids, but kids do get exposed to language before they're actually able to produce it. And they produce sort of bits and pieces and fragments that are kind of 
heading towards language, you know, the babbles, ba 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 ba, or like kids that are exposed to sign languages babble with their hands, um, they produce these um, things that are kind of heading towards language that signal that they're interested in communicating before they're actually capable of putting producing full words. And so I, I wonder, and you know, this study hasn't been done, and I can't claim that my emoji, small emoji, child emoji texting corpus can fully do this. I'd love to see someone do a, a proper study. But it seems to me that sending some emojis it might be kind of like babbling in, in a digital context. Like it's teaching the kids, okay, you can tap on the keyboard and you can send symbols and you can see some stuff on how to do this. And so the transition into writing is more seamless. Um, kind of like how kids often learn how to sort of draw and like scrawl pictures onto paper before they start trying to write letters. Mm -hmm. So it can be a sort of scaffolding into this other skill uh, that turns out to be super useful and interesting for communication. And you can still be having this sort of two-way dialogue via a phone, via a screen, via symbols on a on a flat surface, um, even though you haven't yet figured out how to actually type words. Well, because you're still getting a, a reaction back in some mechanism. Things are appearing on the screen. Somebody is replying to you in the same way that if you're babbling vocally and mom or dad is around, it's very likely that they will talk back to you or or respond in some way to the sounds you're making. Yeah. And, and kids learn how to do that sort of turn taking before they learn how to do actual words. Right. Like they can produce a string of syllables or a string of signs that don't actually make sense. And then they'll like pause and they'll wait for the other person to say something and then they'll do more. Like they can produce that turn taking thing in the physical domain. Um, and so learning the, that little sort of turn taking norms in the text domain is just so cool. Uh, it's, it's really neat. Um, they can, you know, they, they're learning to do something and the, and the adults are, are paying attention. So, so either the adults send emoji back. So they'll, they'll pick up on a couple of the emoji that the kids are sending and they'll send back a similar emoji. Like, you know, you kid sends a dinosaur, you send a dinosaur back. Uh, or they'll, they'll narrate them in, in words. And both of those, I think, are really interesting in terms of teaching the rhythms of a text-based conversation. Yeah. Really, really fascinating. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about emoji as well. I think, I mean, obviously, most of us use emoji. Um, and uh, it's a very now normal part of our day to day lives. But it really wasn't so long ago that emojis were brand new. So can you talk a little bit about how how we use emojis and how our use of them has changed since their introduction? I like to think of emoji, broadly speaking, as being similar to gesture. Uh, and I think both emoji and sort of the broader um, emotional ecosystem, whether that's text-based emoticons, you know, colon, parenthesis, uh, or GIFs, even larger, or stickers that some people use, or these various kinds of things, um, a lot of them seem to have communicative functions that are very similar to how we use gesture in communication. Uh, and some of them even correspond to very specific gestures. So if you send to somebody something like, good job, thumbs up, whether that's you know, in speech or whether that's in writing, um, that's the thumbs up there is going to sort of reinforce that positive message. If you send someone good job with, let's say, the middle finger, <laughs> or, or even like the rolling eyes, now you're being sarcastic, you're undermining the message, you're deliberately, you know, communicating on multiple levels here. <laughs> like that conveys something pretty different from like, good job, thumbs up, like, good job. Mm. <laughs> and I'm not sincere about this. Uh, insert epithet of your choice. So the, 
and there are some you can kind of do a direct parallel between between gestures and emojis there but even something like you know good job plus eggplant emoji you know that's <laughs> that's probably an innuendo um the like there's a there's a bunch of different things you can do that even though there isn't a sort of direct gestural equivalent uh of an eggplant emoji it's still it, it can add this pragmatic function of telling people the context for how to interpret or the intention for how to interpret the words that they're they're going with um so that's that's one of the ways that i that i think of emoji in terms of their role in communication more broadly speaking because with the exception of like these two and three and four year olds uh, who haven't learned to read and write and who abandon emoji uh, or start using emoji very, very differently once they learn how to read and write, um, people don't seem to send a lot of messages that are like emoji only extended stories, which was the sort of big panic a few years ago uh, in terms of what, you know, maybe maybe people aren't going to write words anymore. They're only going to send emojis. What I find quite interesting, um, having been... I mean, I, I was definitely somebody who was on the internet fairly early. I got on in the early mid nineties, one of those early GeoCities people, um, making nerdy websites about my nerdy, uh, nerdy favorite things when I was a teenager. Um, and what I've really noticed across my participation on the internet is how ubiquitous now things like emoji and emoticons are. I mean, these things have been in use in varying places for a while because one of the challenges inherent in being restricted to written language is you lack tone. You lack an emotional understanding of what people are saying. So it can be very easy to misunderstand or take something out of context based on your own emotional state or your own suspicions or your own assumptions about the other person's intent. And so I, f I mean, it, being able to clarify this, um, is, was, has always been important since I think the internet began just to, just to sort of grease the wheels a little bit of text-based communication. Um, but what I find really fascinating is that there was, it, it was always like a, a thing for informal communication, but now I'm, as I, as I work from home and as I spend a lot of time in, in, um, work chat places like Slack, emoji are so incredibly valuable and necessary as part of my work communication, like very official, work kind of weirdly formal informal language because it's so important to have those tone triggers those gestures as you say to make sure that you can have smooth communication and efficient communication because sometimes words aren't enough yeah and the i think you know what you've just exposed is that like like all good dichotomies it's actually a continuum um, and in this case the dichotomy between formal and in informal uh when it comes to language is is also a continuum um and i think you know sometimes people people look back at the forms of writing that have survived in a very public observable sort of way, which is not all kinds of writing that existed in history, but it's the forms that get reproduced a lot. And they think kind of, you know, rah, 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 is if, if only words was good enough for Shakespeare, it should be good enough for us. Which, you know, first of all, Shakespeare produced plays. Yeah, um, words were actually and, not <laughs> enough for Shakespeare, if you're going to be really strict about it. If you're going to be really pedantic about this, like, uh, if people actually find it kind of weird to just read Shakespeare on a page, uh, and then when it really comes to life, when it's in this well-acted production, you have costumes and actors and, you know, 
know, gestures and <laughs> vocal inflections, and all of these sorts of things that really make language come to life. So I, I, I would dispute the claim that words are good enough for Shakespeare. <laughs> and I think this, but I think this observation that it's hard to communicate uh, sarcasm, or it's hard to communicate irony or double meaning or these sorts of subtle additions to meaning uh, or tone or gesture in the online context is is very old. People have been complaining about it, not just, in fact, in the online context, but there are proposals for irony punctuation marks. The The oldest one that I'm aware of uh, dates back to 1575. Oh, wow. <laughs> so there's almost 500 years of people saying, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could communicate uh, irony or sarcasm in writing. And there's there's one like every century since then, like Rousseau had a proposal. Um, there's like several different French uh, philosophers had proposals for point d'ironie, irony points. Um, there are proposals in the 1800s, there are proposals in the 1900s. There's this like proposal for sartalics uh, from like in the mid 1900s. Like it really just, it really goes all the way through every century. There's at least one and sometimes more more than one proposal for like, here's how we could represent irony in writing. Um, and so clearly people think this is important and not just in an internet context. The thing that I find exciting and interesting is that the internet context is where these proposals stopped being sort of these abstract philosophical proposals, like some somebody thinks this is a good idea, and start being practically used to a much higher level. And there's a whole bunch of them. You know, so there's a few examples of ironic uh, punctuation that come into being before the internet. Things like scare quotes, mm -hmm. like that is that is a type of ironic punctuation. Uh, or there's a um, uh, there's a certain amount of ironic capitalization and like ironic use of the copyright or trademark symbol. Yeah, um, that gets <laughs> that's also pre-internet-ish, although it becomes more common on the internet as well. Um, like very important ideas, like oh, okay, well maybe this isn't actually that important. Um, the but in the on the internet there becomes you know a whole bunch of them. Uh, you have the ironic or sarcastic use of the tilde. You have the ironic or sarcastic use of um, just like of like sparkles in general. Sometimes sparkle emoji used to surround something. Uh, one of the ones that I really like is the uh, the lack of a question mark to signal a rhetorical or ironic question. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so if I send something like what could possibly go wrong without a question mark, I'm not really asking you to enumerate a list of things that could go wrong. I'm just asking this question ironically, which I think is really brilliant because you actually get four different possibilities, right? So you can ask a statement, you can say a statement, like something that has a statement syntax, like, sounds good, uh, with no question mark, and then it's still a statement. You can write a statement with a question mark, and then it can indicate a question or just a rising intonation. It sounds good. Uh, and that's sort of uncertainty, or it can indicate uh, uptalk, or it can indicate, you know, that you're not quite finished with your sentence, or, you know, sort of tentativeness, or that you're making it into a, a, a partial question. And then you can do the inverse. You can have a statement that has the syntax of a question. So what could possibly go wrong with an actual question mark, where it's a real question, probably, or you can have a statement with the syntax of a question that doesn't have a question mark, where it's now this ironic question. So from this, you know, like, you you could, if you wanted to, be like, rah, 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 question mark doesn't indicate a question anymore. But like, man, we have like four possibilities now. This is exciting. This is richness. This is expanding the emotional possibility. This is like, those guys in the 1500s, like, they this is what they wanted, and now we have succeeded at their goals. <laughs> I think that's great.
Although I do find it immensely satisfying that we probably have succeeded at what they wanted, but definitely not in the way that they maybe would have wanted. <laughs> no, 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 no. Probably not the way they wanted to. Well, but the interesting thing is, is that a lot of these earlier proposals for ironic punctuation are things like a backwards question mark or an upside down exclamation mark. And what I think they recognized, at least to some extent, was that um, something that's ironic is there's there's a literature on irony, because of course there is, um, which I got to read some of when I was writing Because Internet. And the thing that characterizes irony is that you have something that works on a literal level in some sense, and then the literal level is undermined by some additional cue that has the possibility for misinterpretation. Because irony is a linguistic trust fall. The, oh, interesting. The thing that makes irony really interesting and exciting and useful is the possibility that it could go wrong. Because if if you wanted to be completely clear about how, everything that you were meaning, we already have a really good tool for that, and it's called not being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> like you don't. Nobody needs irony <laughs> for a like communicative sort, like a a literal communicative sort of level, um, but. The value in irony is that, you know, when you, when you do a trust fall with someone and they catch you, now you have this additional sort of trust between them because you have this additional sort of understanding that you can take this risk and they can support you in it. And so the problem with creating a single unambiguous ironic punctuation mark that only works for irony is that it defeats the whole point of irony. Like irony doesn't work. If you're like, hey, guys, I'm being ironic now. Here, let me explain the joke. It's like, you know, telling jokes by explaining them. Like, no, no, nobody likes that. Yeah, it feels, no it feels like the irony of leaving the question mark off, are you serious? Or uh, what is ostensibly a question is really a shortcut to so many complex things that would take way too many sentences to type out on my phone. Right. And what you're trying to do with all of these various kinds of ironic punctuation is sort of gently signal that there's something else going on here and the person needs to interpret your statement with some extra layer of context somehow. Right? And the precise nature of that additional meaning is left up to that context and your relationship with each other uh, and these types of uh, you know, what what you've said and how you've said it. It's left up to a certain amount of interpretation. Because if you wanted to convey your entire literal meaning in a very spelled out sort of way, again, we, we have a tool for that. <laughs> and it's called not using irony at all. <laughs> so it's this risk that irony takes. And the thing that I found very interesting and compelling about reading uh, some literature on irony was that even in speech, you know, your sort of gold standard irony, we've been ironing in speech for years – not sure if that's how ironing works, uh, but let's go with it. Um, <laughs> we've been ironing in speech for centuries and millennia. You know, before we recorded time, we've we've been ironing for years. There is still this possibility that irony sometimes goes wrong in speech, and in fact, uh, 
ironists analyze this as uh, irony as having two components. One is the initial ironic statement, and the second is the statement by the recipient that indicates that the irony is understood uh, and either continues the irony or makes a riff on it or does some sort of laugh or chuckle or acknowledgement that the irony is received as intended. It's this two-part thing because this communication can go wrong, because the risk that irony takes is the risk that something could go wrong. Um, and, but when you, when you execute a dangerous conversational maneuver together and you succeed, you have this excitement, uh, and this feeling of like, we've, we've done this thing, we've succeeded at this tricky sort of conversational task and it brings people closer together. So it's, it, it can be worth it. And it's because of the risk that when it succeeds, it's so exciting. The way technology is starting to impact our language and our word choice and the way it's evolving and the way it's moving around the world is, I think, quite different. And you talk a little bit about this in your book, um, in particular with the, the advent of things like Twitter in particular, where you can watch a lot of conversations happening. You can kind of look at the back and forth of people who you don't know personally and are having their own side conversation in a sort of public space. Um, and what I found really interesting as well is the idea that new words or phrases or ways of talking or linguistic elements of communication that appear in text-based language on the internet are spreading in slightly different ways. Whereas if, you know, language has always spread, um, but it tends to have spread mostly based on geography because you were talking to people, you'd pick up language that you heard. Um, and in order to do that, you generally have to be in the same location as somebody. Um, whereas online, and I definitely feel this, and this really struck a chord with me, I picked up I, I, my internet language comes from the people I talk to online or the, th the people that I watch talking online. And those tend to be not geographically based. They tend to be, um, people who share interests with me. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it's a, the kind of thing that I, I, I'm really excited to see the next, you know, future decades of how computational sociolinguistics looks into this area because it's a sort of burgeoning subfield of linguistics is looking at sociolinguistics in this, this computational sense where you have uh, a lot of access to data. One of the studies that I think is interesting for this at the moment, um, looks at, uh, how people, uh, pick up words from people that they follow on Twitter. So they did sort of a, you know, network analysis of, of like, collecting a bunch of data of people and then the people who they follow. Um, and what they found was interesting is that there were sort of two types of uh, new vocabulary items that people picked up from other people on Twitter. Uh, and one was the kind that take advantage of the written medium that are kind of specific to the written medium. So that things like acronyms, like acronyms, they're very efficient in writing. They're not actually very efficient in speech often, because if you say something like WTF, that actually takes longer to say than the thing that that stands for, mm -hmm. um, because W is such a long letter. Um, and uh, uh, so acronyms, and then also uh, things like, uh, like phonetic respellings or creative respellings. Um, so uh, you know, writing something like gonna for going to, well, that one's already common, but there are, there are new ones that come up. Um, you know, where no one, <laughs> like, uh, you, you can't really spread gonna for going to because every English speaker already says gonna. 
but you can spread the respelling gonna because not everyone necessarily writes going to uh, with the shortened, more phonetic respelling. Um, so you can spread uh, respellings like that. Um, but if they're a, they're a very written thing to spread, you can't you can't learn that respelling from speech in the same sort of way. Um, and then also things like emoticons and uh, emoji and stuff, which are of course visual, and you don't you know smiling at someone does not thereby teach them how to use the smile emoticon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Um, so there's, there's stuff that takes advantage of the, the written medium in particular. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that I tend to look at as internet language because you can show that it has to be spreading via the internet, uh, or at least via writing and writing spreads via the internet because there aren't a lot of people sending postcards to each other mm -hmm. anymore. Uh, and then there were other words that are just like, oh, here's this word that you could, you could write or you could say out loud. You know, here's this, here's this, uh, you know, a, something like lit for drunk or something like that. Okay, sure. Uh, or for lit for great, both of those things. Like, sure, that's a word. You can say it out loud. You could write it. There's nothing particularly special about the written medium for that word. Um, and so what was interesting is that they found that there was this correlation between how often um, people would see these one set of words that take advantage of the written medium. Uh, well, words plus, because it also includes emoticons and emoji. And for those, there was this very direct relationship between how often someone would have seen that in their feed and whether they picked it up later. And for the kind that had a ready available spoken equivalent, there wasn't this direct relationship. You could, you basically couldn't predict anything there. And so the idea was, okay, people, people are very directly affected by the, the written medium for, uh, things that are, have to be written. But for things that can be written and spoken, they're still being affected by stuff that happens offline that we can't measure by looking at Twitter data. Uh, so there are still other mechanisms for language spreading, whether that's through, you know, people that you talk to face to face, I hope, uh, or over, you know, uh, in, in voice conversations, which we don't, don't track via Twitter, um, or through, through other types of media. There, there does seem to be, uh, if the internet has a has a vocabulary that is that is specifically internetish, it's the kind that relies on this written medium to spread, um, and so it's it, it's interesting to sort of and this sort of network analysis like you can't even imagine doing it before you have access to these massive amounts of text because like you know really 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 how like you'd have to um there've been a few studies especially of like children acquiring language where they'll get you know research will, researchers will come in and they'll record the child for like i don't know an hour a week and that's like a ton of data and you have to go through audio recordings and it's a massive pain to deal with audio uh and you still only get this very tiny snapshot of what the kids are doing and you do it for like a dozen kids and you get so much data and you have to deal with so much of it um like that that was the kind of thing that was big data <laughs> um before we started doing so much stuff in public text formats which can be analyzed even if they're not 100% representative of everything that happens online, right? Because, like, not everyone's on Twitter, and the demographics that are on Twitter are not a, like, random snapshot of all people or even all internet users, you know? Like, they're disproportionately from certain age groups or disproportionately from certain demographics, from certain income groups. Like, it's not a straightforward snapshot of everyone who's online. But it is some snapshot of some people, which is not you know, like lots of people are using Facebook and not Twitter, or they're using Instagram or WhatsApp or something and they're not and not Twitter. But those are harder to analyze because those are private. <laughs> so 
And I would assume, and, and- I would assume that one of the other interesting things about this is if you want to do some research with a kid where you get 40 hours of recording, you can't get 40 hours of recording from two years before. You sort of have to get future recordings and you can't go back in time. Whereas a lot of places that uh, where we are producing and creating and having these conversations in public, if there's something that pops up, you can actually look back and see, okay, how long has this been around? Kind of where did it start popping up in this particular network, which is something I'm not sure that we've ever been really easily able to do in the field of linguistics before in the same kind of way. Yeah, and there's this really interesting. So one of the one of the fun myths that a lot of that uh, gets spread a lot is he's like Shakespeare invented so many words. But what's actually really interesting is that what happened was that many early dictionary composers, you know, lexicographers in English, uh, compilers, and people who looked for citations for those dictionaries, what they had access to in terms of historical English writing was the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> Right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't necessarily that Shakespeare actually invented these words or even that Shakespeare was the first person to write them down. Uh, you know, it was that Shakespeare was the text from like the old text that people had, that the lexicographers in like the 1800s had access to. Because they didn't have like, oh, here's this massive digital corpus of everything that's ever been written in English before 1700 or something uh, that they could just search for. They literally had to read page by page, being like, hmm, has anyone here used the word Clementine or whatever? Yeah, I can't imagine being an early lexicographer and having to go like, all right, I need to find this word. Oh, no, uh, that would be that would be uh, quite an interesting challenge. Um, they had like boxes and boxes and shelves and shelves of like note cards, like cue cards, like uh, like library card catalog systems. That was what they were doing. That's how they were keeping track of this type of stuff. And people would like send in like snippets from various types of things. But in terms of historical data, you know, a lot of it was based on like what people had access to. And I think it gives us this perception that if, you know, kind of a few of these big, great writers came up with all the, like came up with a bunch of words, when it's actually that their words were more preserved because we don't have access to as many letters from the time period. They haven't necessarily been digitized. They aren't necessarily preserved unless their writers were famous. Um, and these days we know that it's not so much that like famous writers invent a bunch of words. It's that ordinary people, uh, use words. They pick up words from each other. They spread words. Um, and it's, you know, and especially it's often, you know, economically marginalized and disenfranchised groups who tend to be more innovative with vocabulary. And so if you're going to be like celebrating Shakespeare for inventing a whole bunch of words, which he didn't actually do, <laughs> the, you know, people who should really be giving this kind of excitement and credit to is like, you know, young urban black women uh, and, you know, queer queer black youth and stuff like this, who often are the source of these heights of invention. Um but don't get the same sort of cultural cachet for it. I would assume that there are also some interesting ethical questions around conducting research on what are ostensibly uh, a public, a large public repository of communication, but that a lot of people who have maybe only 
10 or 20 followers, all of, all of whom they generally know personally in some way, shape or form, even if it's personally across the internet. Um, they probably have some expectation that perhaps their words are kind of private if they're, if, even though they're in public because of the sort of obscurity of their account. So my assumption is, is that there's also some interesting ethical questions with studying a body or a collection of data like, uh, the public Twitter record. Yeah, I think there is an interesting ethical question. I think it's something that, you know, like a, an IRB, an institutional ethics board is going to say, well, it's public, so it's fine. But I think there's this more complicated question there, which is what kind of expectations does the person have that's putting this data out there? Would they be upset to find this out? And I think it depends a lot in terms of what you're doing with the data necessarily, because mm -hmm. if you're pulling millions of tweets and you're looking at them in aggregate, the results aren't necessarily traced back to individual people. So I feel a lot more okay about like, okay, well, you know, these are being compiled from a people who have very few Twitter followers who weren't expecting their tweets to end up in a research study, but it's not actually going to be traceable back to that individual person. So they're not going to like suddenly have, you know, trolls or hate mobs or something be directed towards them because of that one tweet they made like five years ago to 20 people. Um, it's going to be immersed in some sort of massive statistical thing and it's not going to be extractable from that. Whereas if you're going to quote someone, specifically uh, by name. There's there's a sort of tension because a lot of ethic research boards will say, okay, well, you can quote people, um, but you have to make their quotes anonymous. And there are two problems with that. One is that it's very hard to, for something to actually be anonymous if people can just plug that string in quotes into Google and thereby find the original post. Because you can omit the username, but people can actually still find that if it's publicly available via the internet. Uh, and so sometimes researchers deal with that problem by doing a certain amount of lexical substitution for words that aren't important, so mm -hmm. that if you uh, plug a tweet in, uh, you, can, you can't find it anymore. So I remember, I think... One paper that was doing this, uh, was saying, okay, so we, we found some tweets about, um, you know, people, people using emoji and we want to use one of the, as an example, but we'll substitute like mom for dad or one family member for another family member and keep the content of the emoji the same. It still refers to a family member. It doesn't particularly have to reflect the exact content of what the person's tweet said. Um, and it, we, if you could do a couple substitutions like that, then it makes the tweet effectively ungoogleable um, and still preserves the rest of the context. But of course, you can't do that for every type of, of data. What I did in Because Internet when I was trying to decide like which parts, which things to quote uh, that, uh, you know, to give examples about internet language uh, was in some cases I was able to ask the person who, who had said it, uh, you know, how do you want to be quoted? What do you want your name to be quoted by? Uh, and in other cases, I looked for quotes where people seem to be engaging in a meta dialogue about internet language, where I could use the quotes as both examples of the phenomenon in question, but also as ways for internet people to participate in the conversation. Mm -hmm. So... There's this example from um, when the Library of Congress announced that they were archiving tweets, which they've now stopped doing, <laughs> because uh, it turns out there are a lot of tweets, and maybe not all of them are historically particularly interesting. But a lot of people started addressing their tweets in the you know days after that announcement to future historians and archivists at the Library of Congress. <laughs> and so I felt okay about quoting a few of those tweets, because those people were actually addressing those tweets to posterity. Right. 
right? And so posterity is now answering them back because it's been like five years. Right. <laughs> it's not that long in posterity. But if somebody says, you know, please, please make sure you uh, archive my cat pictures under Kitte, <laughs> uh, or, you know, <laughs> like, I, I think that's a way of like that that's somebody who's trying to have that sort of conver- reaching out and trying to have that sort of conversation that I don't feel like they would be displeased to find that tweet in a book about internet language. I think they'd actually be very tickled. Um whereas somebody who's just like, "Oh, I had a bad day," like, you know, this, you know, my dog died or something, like they might be kind of <laughs> weirded out to find that kind of tweet quoted. Cuz sure. that's more personal even just content-wise trying to figure out what these kinds of uh, things are. So, th- which gets us to the second point, which is to one extent, okay, maybe you want to anonymize something, but there's a tension between anonymization and also attribution. Because if somebody has said something kind of clever on the internet, maybe they want that attribution that they are the author of this clever thing in the internet, and they don't want to be anonymized and have that authorship taken away from them. Um, I was actually... Uh, on a on a panel once about different ways to, that people communicate online, um, and another of my co-panelists was doing this study about you know how how are people talking about linguistics on Twitter, and I was talking about a different platform, um, and he'd gotten you know IRB approval from his board to do this study to you know do this like sort of case study analysis of how people are using Twitter online, and he had gotten permission from each of us, each of the people who, who had tweeted about this thing to like screen cap their tweets and use them in the presentation. But the IRB had required that he anonymize the tweets. And I said, look, you're screen capping me. I'm your co-panelist. I don't feel like I'm really a research subject here. I would like authorship attribution. Please keep my name on my tweets and don't anonymize me because I want people to know it was me because I'm talking after you. <laughs> Right. And he said, no, the IRB says I can't do that. And I was like, sorry, but I think that the wishes of the subject should override the IRB in this case. Yeah, it's interesting, especially with something like Twitter, because there's a, a lot of different tensions in play here. One of them is in some cases, and even if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of followers, you may aspire to have a lot of followers. And Right. Like, Twitter is a is a performative to... platform. Right. And so what I did is if like I would quote people by whatever username they were using on a particular platform. So if they wanted that to be pseudonymous, it would be attributed to whatever that pseudonym was, and they would be the ones in control of whether they were linking that pseudonym to their actual name or not. I didn't try to go find people's like wallet names to attribute them to their internet names, because like I'm not in the business of trying to dox people. Right. <laughs> but uh at the same time, I did want to credit those pseudonyms because if somebody wants to say, like, who was this person that made this funny quip about the Library of Congress? It's a funny quip. They, I, I feel like they can get credit for that. And I don't feel like it's going to, but also picking something that is funny and does show its user in a good light. I'm not picking, um, you know, there were also a bunch of people who tweeted like really <laughs> like long strings of swear words at the Library of Congress being like, haha, put that in your archive. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, this is very interesting. I don't think I'm going to put this in the book because I think I can make the same point with the cat pictures. And also I'm not necessarily exposing someone to this particular type of criticism by making that string easy for someone to find them. So like, are you bringing someone up in a way that potentially makes them a target is also, I think, something that, you know, ethics boards are just not considering uh, because they're treating all kinds of online quotation and online text as if they're the same thing. 
and they're really, really not. People have very different types of expectations of privacy depending on where they're uh, you know, where they're putting something and how many followers they have. Sometimes uh, on a few occasions when I've needed to quote a tweet for an article, I'll try to pick people that have above a certain number of followers to quote. Because if somebody's got like 10, 20,000 followers, they're not really expecting their tweets are private in right. the same sort of way as somebody who has like under 100. Right. So like, I'm not going to embed a tweet from somebody who has like under 100 followers on Twitter. Uh, maybe unless they're a public figure, you know, if you're a politician, you should know better, <laughs> even if no one's following you. But, you know, there's this sort of tension of like, is this person a public figure? Are they trying to like make their name in a public sphere? Uh, and does that make them more uh, available? I think um, actually Wikipedia has a fairly good um, set of guidelines for, you know, should someone be making, should, should there be an article made for somebody? And in some cases they say, look, if someone's not trying to be a public figure, then details of their life, even if they're publicly available, may not be necessary for us to report on in a Wikipedia article about them. Right. There's also other types of ethical concerns around studying publicly available Twitter conversations and uh, that big group of data. And I'm thinking um, in terms of marginalized groups that may be speaking in a certain way to protect themselves. There's definitely a lot of queer communities that develop their own language and so that they can communicate and share themselves in some respect, but also feel safe uh, from the other people who may know who they are in real life and be able to connect those the username with the quote unquote real person, um, in order to keep themselves safe. Um, and so there's, I'm assuming also some ethics wrapped up and around if we start talking about and exposing these signals more widely that are interesting and currently being used in the real world, we could also inadvertently put people at danger. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, one of the reasons why I decided to not do like, oh, you know, here's a chapter about black Twitter or something of like, mm, you know, I did, did some reading about that. But I, what I found is that there were some critiques by black scholars about the kind of the whole concept of black Twitter. And, you know, this is an area where this one particular group of Twitter users has this type of hyper scrutiny on their actions that like many other Twitter users don't have. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe they shouldn't be considered this whole other thing. So it's like, oh, that's, that's actually very interesting. And there's a tension between saying, okay, you know, a lot of words do enter the sort of, you know, white, straight, mainstream media because they get appropriated from marginalized communities. But I don't need to make that cycle of appropriation happen any faster by my own intervention by saying, hey, here's this cool word we should all steal from <laughs> this marginalized group. Like that's, that's not a part of that cycle that I need to participate in. If a word has already crossed over, uh, and, you know, the mainstream communities are already aware of it and, you know, by assumption, the groups that were, that it initially started with have, you know, decided that it's, it's passe now or it's not something, you know, it's something that, that, you know, that people are that people outside of the community are aware of, and so they they aren't using it in the same sort of coded way. Then, you know, that's that that's a thing that can still happen without me. But I don't need to make it happen any faster by saying, "Oh, let me let me go become a voyeur in this community just so that I can kind of report on them for a more mainstream audience." That's not something that that sort of sits right with me. Um, and I think in that case, if you're going to do if someone's going to do uh, research on a particular community and how they use the internet. I'd want to see them be a member of that community and have closer ties to how people are thinking about this and how to do that in a 
responsible way to people who are members of that community. Yeah, this is reminding me of a conversation I had a, a couple of years ago on this podcast talking about um, getting DNA from Indigenous and American Indian groups um, for studies that would help them or help uh, help uh, understand an illness that was traveling help around in that community. Quotes. Right. And, and a, in a lot of cases, um, the, uh, the tribes or the bands gave it, gave the, um, samples willingly for, uh, an understood set of reasons. And then the researchers went and took those repositories of DNA swabs and then did a whole bunch of other studies later mm. on things like the, prevalence of schizophrenia in American Indian bands. And it, they were like, whoa, no, that is not cool. And because as we study things, especially when we study things that we are not part of, we miss things in it. We bring in our own assumptions. We bring in our own biases. And the idea of studying an area of Twitter that I am not an inclusive member of feels voyeuristic and prone to assumption and bias in the same way that those medical studies did. I mean, understanding schizophrenia, definitely something that we should try and do. But the way it was done was so tone deaf and so, um, so non-understanding of the way that that information would be perceived more broadly. And I think there's some of that quicksand here as well when we talk about voyeuring and looking at the the body of data and trying to kind of pick it apart and understand it. It's interesting. And I think there are people who can and should do that kind of work, but we should be careful who does that work and why. And also think about, you know, what are you know, there are existing scholars in uh, in communities that we're not part of who are trying to amplify certain types of messages outside of those communities. So how can an outsider amplify those messages of people who have been studying this area? So there's this article in Teen Vogue called We Need to Talk About Digital Blackface and Reaction Gifts by Lauren Michelle Jackson. And it's an article that I cite a lot because I think it's an example of this case of trying to amplify what people are actually doing in a particular community rather than saying, oh, I'm going to go enter and be a voyeur and report on what I find interesting. And the articles about um, people in general, especially people who aren't black, white people or people of other uh, backgrounds, using disproportionately black entertainment figures in their reaction gifts, you know, to convey something like, rolling your eyes or clapping hands or eating popcorn, these types of various things that people do as actions. And Jackson links this concept of the theatricality and sort of heightened emotion emotiveness to things like minstrel shows and like the, you know, a lot of stereotypes that have existed for hundreds of years in American culture and say, you know, like, this is a problem and you should be looking at your gifts and seeing if you're using people who don't look like you. Why are you doing that? <laughs> and what are you actually conveying? And you're not being somehow like weirdly inclusive if you're a white person who's using a, a black avatar online, even though if you're not using it to represent, to claim to represent yourself personally, it's, you know, it's, it's this problem. And I think after that article came out, I definitely shifted how I used my gifts and I noticed other people shifting theirs, but every so often there's still somebody who encounters it again and is like, oh, wait, actually this is important. So I think trying to 
amplify work like that and not trying to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go into this community and report on what I think is interesting there, uh, or try to, you know, amplify concerns that people have inside the community rather than sort of report on interesting things for a, a mainstream culture to consume from it is a, is a more ethical stance to take at a research agenda level. Absolutely. I, I'm definitely agree that we should be pointing at people who have a better understanding of what the actual usage of their of of that language of the intention behind that language where it's come from and also how it's been misused or misappropriated because that is definitely something that as a white woman I will just miss a lot of because those are my biases and those are the biases within the system that we live in. So it's, it's really important to point at those, at, at people who are doing that work from within a community or at least who are close to the community. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting because I get a lot of, uh, you know, media trying to, to say, oh, well, you do internet language. Therefore, can you, can you quote on this new social media word? And I'm like, I don't think this one's a social media word. I think this is a word that like, that white people are are appropriating for black people right now, and that's that's not something that's my area of expertise. Like you need to to find somebody who's who has better uh, expertise than I do there. I'm not going to claim that like every single new word is an internet word. For sure, Gretchen, it has been so great talking to you, and I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It is both really interesting and highly entertaining. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And if you want to learn more about Gretchen McCulloch, we have links as per usual for you to click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 